no sense of decency, sir, at long last. Have you left no sense of decency? You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how are you? I'm okay, Neil. It's the question that's in the title. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 1615, and the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, master of probably the most powerful empire in the world at the time, is frustrated. His efforts to expand his borders are struggling. His armies bog down fighting one small state that has managed to resist everything he could throw at it. He's so frustrated, in fact, that he commissions a painting of himself shooting arrows at the head of the general who keeps halting all of the Mughal Empire's attacks. To modernize, it's something of a surprising painting. A Mughal emperor in full regalia firing arrows at the heads of an African man. All right, David, we're going back to 1615 and this unusual painting. Tell us a little bit about the Mughal Empire and who we're dealing with here. So the Mughal Empire controlled, by this point, large portions of India. And a time period in the 1600s when oceanic trade between Europe on one hand and China on the other was just starting to really grow to become a thing. India was a critically placed on the trade routes to become extremely wealthy. And this was a nation that by medieval standards had already been very wealthy. So it was a geographically a brilliant location. And then the Mughal Empire was large, larger than any of its rivals, the most powerful force on the Indian subcontinent, and was using those advantages to build famous monuments, fabulous art, giant armies, all of the traditional elements of a great empire. Okay, so we do know that India is a powerful subcontinent, a very important place to this very day. Back then, this Mughal Empire ruling the entire area. But David, there's a thorn, a thorn in their side. One holdout that they cannot conquer. Where is this holdout? So in southern India, an area called the Deccan, there's a little state called Ahmed Nagar, and it, in 1615, is the one place that the Mughals have attacked on the Indian continent that they just can't take, that their armies just keep on failing at. So tell us about this place Amin Nagar, what makes it special? So Amin Nagar is located in southern India, as I've said, in the Deccan. It's a very dry, arid region, practically a desert in some places. So geographically, there are barriers there. But otherwise, you wouldn't have picked it out before Mughal invasion started foundering. You wouldn't have pointed at it and said, this is the tiny little self-proclaimed sultanate that's going to be a holdout, be successful. It's had its share of 
civil strife fighting between princes and the royal family, just as many small monarchies in the medieval period did. It has alliances with some of its other small neighbors, but nothing unique. And its armies are reasonably sized for the population. They're not small, but they're not outsized in any way. Not famous. It's a country that you would expect to collapse in the face of a Mughal invasion, except for the fact that it did not. Good for them, David. We're always cheering for the little guys. So they are holding out against the Mughals. You mentioned this leader, this leader who's frustrating Jahangir so much that he commissioned a painting of him shooting arrows at his head. Who's this man? So this is Malik Ambar. He, like I've said, he's from Africa, more specifically somewhere in modern-day Ethiopia, probably but not definitively of Oromo ethnicity. His birth name was Chapu, which is the reason why historians believe that's an Oromo name, so he was likely Oromo himself. Obviously, when he was kidnapped from his family and his traditional religion and made a slave as a child, his Islamic enslavers gave him the new name of Malik Ambar, and then he was bought and sold for a bit. He was born in 1548. By 1575, he's been brought all the way from Ethiopia to India, which is a very long way in the mid-1500s to travel at all, but he hasn't been traveling voluntarily. He's been brought as a slave by slave traders, constantly seeking a new market that will be more lucrative than any of the local Arabian ports. So David, he's a slave when he comes to India. How does he end up becoming so powerful that he can frustrate the Mughal Empire? So in 1575, he reaches India and he's a slave and he's purchased by the little sultanate of Ahmed Nagar who are looking for warriors. And apparently... Malik Ambar has some training, or maybe he doesn't and he's just physically strong. Either way, he gets hired on to be a soldier, an enslaved soldier still, for Ahmed Nagar. Sometime in the 1580s, the specific man who had purchased him dies, and in accordance with Indian law and tradition, you don't remain enslaved generationally. When your master dies, you become free. So Malik Ambar becomes free, and with no real professional training, he's not going to become a farmer or something because he doesn't know how to do that. He's been a slave since he was a child, and he's worked as a soldier while he was a slave. So when he becomes free, he decides to become a soldier, but not one working for a government. He's just become free. He wants to work for himself. So he sets himself up as the head of a band of mercenaries. And like I say, that's sometime in the 1580s. We don't know exactly when, but we do know that by 1590, he's commanding the largest mercenary company in Ahmed Nagar. And there's at least 1,500 cavalry following him, probably more infantry than that. So he's becoming a powerful mercenary leader. By 1590. 
That is incredible, David. He goes from being an enslaved soldier to leading this massive mercenary force. He now is quite powerful just because he has so many men following him, selling their swords. David, is there lots of work for him in the Indian subcontinent at this point? There is a lot. The Mughals are expanding, so there's always somebody looking to hire you to try and protect their little country against the Mughals. There's religious conflict. The Mughals are Muslim, so are many other noble families on the Indian subcontinent, but the majority of the population at this time is Hindi, so there's religious conflicts going on left and right for a slave who maybe doesn't feel very strongly about the Muslim religion one way or another. Lots of work there. And then there's always personal dynastic conflicts, which is what eventually brings him back to working in Ahmed Nagar full-time. There's a dynastic conflict amongst the Nizam Shah family, who are the rulers of Ahmed Nagar, and following the deaths of the current sultan, a civil war erupts between the heir to the throne, who's a child of only five years old, whose regent is his aunt, who's an amazing woman in her own right. Her name is Chand Bibi, and we're not going to be able to do full credit to her story on this podcast, but an amazing woman who's been married outside of the Sultanate as a political marriage. Her husband died. She has to defend herself and escape in the chaos of that mess gets back to Ahmed Nagar and becomes regent, but immediately has to fight another faction led by one of the adult male members of the family line who feels that he would do a better job as Shah than this five-year-old. So there's a civil war, and Malik Ambar gets hired on by Chand Bibi's faction as another element in their military. So, David, he's back in the country where he became an enslaved soldier, but now a free soldier leading a mercenary army on behalf of the five-year-old regent. How does this war go, David? Well, in the short term, it goes very well for Chand Bibi, the male who was trying to seize the throne, turns out to be extremely incompetent. His army starts falling apart. She is very clearly the regent now. For Malik Ambar, there wasn't a lot of fighting. He still got paid. That's a pretty good deal. Everything looks pretty great. Unfortunately, our would-be usurper has one last card left to play. He invites the Mughal Empire in, asking them to support his claim to the Sultanate in return for acknowledging their overlordship of the entire country. So this usurper will sell the country out just to get the throne. That is not good for them, David. And this is what brings us to 1615 and the Mughals frustrated as they try to take Amin Nagar. Well, this is happening in the late 1590s. 1597 is the entry of the Mughals into the war. And so we're almost to 1615. 1599 sees the death of Chand Bibi. She's still commanding her troops in person, 
and she's commanding her troops. They get besieged in one of the border fortresses. There's no way for them to win. By this point, she's an experienced enough general in her own right to realize that the battle is lost and they have to negotiate to let the army escape. But some of her officers believe that it's cowardice and murder her and insist that the fort be held at all costs. Then they all die because she was right. They were wrong. There's no way for them to win. But she's dead now. And obviously, this causes terrible chaos for the Amendegar Sultanate. There's a five-year-old theoretically on the throne, but he's not doing a lot of practical ruling in person. The regent is dead, and there was already a civil war going on before that happened. Not a good situation. So, David, this is a bit of a mess now. You've got this young sultan, and we've seen in previous podcasts that that doesn't work out quite so well all the time. So who's going to take charge of this country of Amin Nagar? So the Mughals, of course, want to take charge of the country. They rush a rapid cavalry force to the capital. They manage to kidnap the five-year-old sultan and take him away back to Delhi, back to the Mughal emperor's capital, but the nobility and the people of Ahmednagar don't want to surrender just because they've lost their sultan. So there's still fighting going on, individual nobility. People are looking for a leader, but it's unclear who is going to be leading the sultanate. And that's when Malik Ambar steps up with his next big move. He finds a distant relative of the Nizam Shahi family, who's very young, again, a very young potential sultan. He announces he's going to hold a full coronation. This is the new sultan of the Ahmednagar Sultanate. And obviously he, Malik Ambar, will be stepping in to serve as regent until the boy reaches the age of 18. David, from a slave boy himself to ruling this country, holding out against the Mughal Empire, this is a story of tremendous growth and perseverance and just an incredible story, David, an incredible underdog story. He is ruling the country now, but he has this large issue of the Mughal Empire who would very much like to be ruling the country themselves. It's an issue, but Malik Ambar has a few plans that the Mughals don't know about. A big one is the Maratha people. They're one of the peoples who live in the region, the Deccan region, and traditionally they're semi-nomadic and a big emphasis on horse riding, horsemanship in their culture. But they're not traditionally warriors. But Malik Ambar realizes, with their knowledge of the Deccan and its arid regions, combined with their incredible horsemanship skills, he's got the makings of an excellent light cavalry force. All he needs to do is train them in tactics that will make sense to them, not the traditional tactics of the Indian nobility. So he trains them to be a light, fast raiding force that will strike not at the Mughals' front lines, but at their supply lines. And this turns out to be a great success, which starts bogging down the Mughal invasion. Then he follows that up 
by using his own considerable military skills and the force, the mercenary force that he has with its extensive training to win a series of early battles which drive the Mughals out of the Sultanate and practically force Jahangir to accept a temporary truce. What a huge win, David. We know how important supply lines are in a war, so a brilliant strike to use the Marasa to attack as light cavalry the supply lines. And now he is winning this war against this much larger, much more powerful enemy. But how long can he continue to hold out for, David? He's still on the wrong side of the size battle in this battle. So at this point, he's got a truce. There's no ongoing war. And he starts putting his efforts into the running the kingdom as a regent, running the sultanate, I should say. And he's most famous in India today. He built the city he named Kadki and its famous canal system named the Neher to this day. The city itself got renamed Aurangabad, but it's still in existence in India today. And he does another series of public works. He builds a new series of border forts to replace the ones that were lost in Chand Bibi's time. So he's doing a bunch of actually running the country. And that's when an opportunity shows up. Jahangir's not popular in Ahmednagar, obviously, but he's also not popular in his own family. His oldest son has already tried to revolt and seize the throne of the Mughal Empire and failed. Now, one of his younger sons decides it's his turn to raise a rebellion and try and replace Jahangir as the Mughal Emperor. And Malik Ambar decides that this is his best opportunity to win the war. So he joins in with this rebellion by this prince, Shah Jahan, and invades Mughal territory. This has turned right around, David. Now he's on the attacking side, taking the fight to the Mughals, and Jahangir is in trouble as his own son rebels against him, supported by this one country that he could never conquer. David, I'm guessing this is going to be a bitter fight as it's literally father against son. I'm sure... There was plenty of bitterness on both sides, but some of the bitterness will soon be Malik Ambar's because Jahangir and Shah Jahan, his son, actually negotiate an end to the rebellion. Shah Jahan gets increased power and gets officially declared the official heir. The Mughal Empire sort of selects from amongst multiple any male heir to the throne can be selected as the direct heir, so that's a slightly different system from the one Europeans are used to. So Shah Jahan gets these major concessions and agrees to end his rebellion, which leaves Ahmed Nagar, who had allied with him and assisted him, sort of hanging in the wind now that the Mughal civil war is over, but obviously there still have to live next to Jahangir, who is not happy. Perhaps a miscalculation here, David, by Malik Ambar. He saw an opportunity to take out Jahangir, but now he faces an angry Mughal empire once again reunited 
is this going to be enough for the Mughals to wipe out this smaller country that they've been trying to take out but haven't been able to yet, David? Is this newfound anger and, you know, maybe mistrust of them since they supported this rebellion, this civil war within the empire, is this going to turn the tide for them? So in 1622, the Mughals put together a massive invasion force. They're bitter, they're angry, they're going to crush this little frustrating little sultanate once and for all. And Malik Ambar is now an old man. He's not a young man anymore by any reckoning. Still an impressive accomplishment for a man who started as a slave, as a child. He's lived to be an old man through all of these wars and battles, so that's impressive on its own, David. It is. And he rides out to lead his forces, and the Mughal invasion comes, and in the initial battle of the campaign, he cleverly destroys one of the dams in the famous water system that he had built, which in turn floods an area which stalls the Mughal advance, which lets him use his famous Maratha cavalry once again to strike the supply lines, and everything is going wrong for the Mughal invasion at that point. Brilliant work, David, by the underdog Malik Ambar, using... Once again, his own knowledge of the region, the Marasa, his dam, to stall the Mughal Empire. And it's a critical victory because the Mughal are still too strong. Even though he's beaten this one army, there's more armies. They keep attacking. For the first time, Malik Ambar starts to lose battles because he's just too outnumbered but he's still keeping up his light raiding tactics. He starts to adopt guerrilla tactics as he retreats. This is very costly for the Mughals. They're winning, but it's very costly. So eventually, they come to the negotiating table, and Ahmed Nagar accepts territorial losses, and they have to accept that the Mughals will now be controlling some critical territory that was once Ahmed Nagar territory, But at the very end of Malik Ambar's life, he gets a final treaty holding Ahmed Nagar portions of the country still free, still independent, and he rules for another four years until 1626 as regent. And I should mention that the sultan, still a child, ends up marrying Malik Ambar's daughter as part of a political effort political marriages, as most marriages at this level of the monarchy were in medieval times. So his grandson will actually be the Sultan of Ahmed Nagar in time. An incredible underdog story, David. A child slave turned into an enslaved soldier. He becomes a free man and ends up winning a crucial victory and keeping his country free from a massive empire that should have been able to just roll right over them. What a story. Thanks for telling us, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed it, be sure to rate this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate all the ratings. It helps others to find us. And you can follow us on social media at When Art Thou. David, we like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz? I'm ready for a quiz, Neil. All right, David, we had a fan request for a presidential dogs quiz. 
We did do a historical pets quiz a while back, so that is in our archives. But today we're going to focus just on the dogs of American presidents. All right. The dogs of American presidents. This might be a tough quiz. Let's do it. All right. Let's start way back with the first president, George Washington, who had a greyhound named after this general who surrendered to the Americans at the siege of Yorktown. General who surrendered to the Americans at the Siege of Yorktown. I'm going to guess that he was named after General Cornwallis. You have got it, David. Somewhat of an interesting name for George Washington's greyhound. He was named Cornwallis. Let's go to Franklin Pierce, David, who had at least two dogs that came from this country after the Perry Expedition. At least two dogs that came from where after the Perry Expedition? I'm going to guess that the country is Japan. You are right, David. Of course, the Perry Expedition was an American naval expedition that opened up Japan for diplomatic ties to the West. And the dogs were miniature teacup Japanese chin dogs that belonged to Franklin Pierce. President William Howard Taft had a dog given to his daughter by opera singer Enrico Caruso, who said that the other animal the Tafts kept as pets were not appropriate for a little girl. What was that animal? What animal not appropriate for a little girl? The dog was given by Enrico Caruso so that his daughter could have a pet that was more appropriate than this other animal. And this other animal, I'm honestly not sure. I'm going to guess a bear. That would have been something if William Howard Taft had kept a bear, David. No, it was actually cows. The Tafts had two pet cows named Mooly Wooly and Pauline Wayne. Pet cows. There you go. Calvin Coolidge's favorite pet was a collie named for which Scottish outlaw and folk hero of the Jacobite Risings? Which Scottish folk hero and outlaw of the Jacobite Risings? I'm Going to guess that it was named after Rob Roy? You are correct, David. Rob Roy McGregor, the dog, was named Rob Roy. Of course, Rob Roy, the outlaw, famously feuded with the Duke of Montrose and fought at the Battle of Glenshiel in 1719. And our last question for you, David, an interesting one here. Joe Biden's German shepherd named Major was sent away from the White House after multiple biting incidents, just as another German shepherd named Major was sent away from the White House after multiple biting incidents in 1933 during whose presidency? 1933. Who was president in 1933 with a biting dog? I'm going to guess Herbert Hoover. It was actually Franklin Delano Roosevelt, David. Two German shepherds named Major, both evicted from the White House for biting. We either need more or less German shepherds named Major in the White House. I'm not sure which. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs>